Well, hey, good morning. Loved having David Walker with us this morning from Grace Snellville, old friend, and uh, just a blessing that he gets to be with our community leading worship with us today. And we're going to do what we do. We're going to open the Bible and see what God might be speaking into our lives. So if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Genesis chapter 50. We're closing out the book of Genesis today. If you need a Bible, just slip up a hand and we will get a Bible in your hand so you can follow along. We have some people walking around, passing out Bibles if you need one. But as you're finding your way there to Genesis chapter 50, I do want to just uh, reiterate, as Brandon said, that there's a, there's a reason why we're pushing so hard into get engaged beyond Sunday morning, whether it's in a grace group or in a learning community. Is it because our deepest desire at Grace Monroe, is that if you spend any time with us as a church, that you will be equipped and empowered to live a fruitful life. That we believe that, that our goal on Sunday morning is simply to get you rooted in your faith, rooted in community, rooted in God's word, rooted in God's love for some of you to meet Jesus for the first time, but rooted with him. But then we don't want you just to stay here in this space, but to grow in your faith, to grow in your love for God, your love for one another, and your love for God's world, for those who don't yet know him. But then as you grow, what we believe the Bible, the Holy Spirit, the gospel message calls us to is to live this fruitful life, a life of, that's reproducing, flourishing in God's goodness. Isn't that what we all desire? Is to be able to look back at our lives and to say that we lived a life of significance, of belonging, of impact. A life that left a legacy bigger than just our own span of time here on earth. I think at our core, every human being desires to live a fruitful life. Amen? And so we believe that, that as we walk in this process together, one of the best things we can do is to engage with one another in community. And really think about that language of a fruitful life. That, that is the language of Genesis. It is the language that we've been looking at over the last several weeks of Joseph's life. In fact, when, when uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, who we call Israel, or who is called Israel, uh, it blesses his son, he says, You are a fruitful vine, overflowing. That Joseph lives a life that bears out. The fruit of God's design, which was the call of God all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, wasn't it? When God created mankind, male and female, and set them in this flourishing garden and said, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, steward this good creation. Take my goodness out from this garden to the ends of the earth. Be fruitful. Live a life of blessing, not to just experience the blessing of God, but to become a blessing to those around you. Live this fruitful life. And we see in Genesis, God's call never changes. Though the people walk away, in fact, turn their back and run away, turn against God, turn against one another. And we see come into the world sin and brokenness, shame and guilt turning against one another in violence and in fear and accusation and blame. And yet, despite all of the brokenness of humanity, this incredible call of God 
still echoes across creation. Be fruitful. Be fruitful. And so we come to the end of, of Joseph or of Jacob's life at the end of Genesis 49. Last week, we looked at this, this life of blessing. What does it mean to speak blessing, to be people of blessing? As Jacob, who is called Israel, gathers his sons around them and speaks a word over them of who they are and what God has for them. And actually, if you'll go to the end of 49, we'll go verse 22, and these are the words that, that, Joseph, that Jacob speaks over Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A, fruit, a branch, a fruitful vine, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. Now the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms, or the strength of his arm, was made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessing of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. What a powerful word. I mean, how would it be for, for your father to look you in the eye and to speak that word of blessing, of fruitfulness, that greater is your blessing than the blessing I received from my parents? And those of you who are parents, is that not your deeper desire, that your child would live a life of fruitfulness and blessing that surpasses the fruitfulness and blessing you received in your own life, that they would surpass you, that they would do greater things, that they would experience greater in their life than you got to experience. And we see Jacob looking at his son and saying, greater is the blessing on you, my son, than the blessing that I experienced for myself. Verse 29, he speaks over Benjamin as well. And then all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them. Blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. That unique word for each one. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, In the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. That's a kind of a long convoluted sentence with a lot of random names, isn't it? But it seems to be very important to Jacob that his son gets this. Why? What's going on here? Jacob is about to die. And what he wants Joseph to get, as they are now in Egypt, and Joseph has risen to the highest ranks of power. He has authority. He has responsibility. He's stewarding the king's resources. Egypt is a great place for that family. They are doing well there. But what Joseph is saying to, or Jacob is saying to his son Joseph is, you are a part of a bigger story than this. You are a, a part of a story that's bigger than your career path. 
You are a part of a bigger story than your, than your family's well-being. You are a part of a bigger plan than the story of Egypt. And though Egypt seems really good and really attractive, don't forget the bigger story. And I think that's a powerful word for us. So we can read this in Genesis and go, okay, it's just a bunch of random people. He wants to get buried back with his family in a cave that his granddaddy bought. No, it's way more than that. These are the words of a dying man. As a pastor, I have had the privilege of standing with families in those final moments of a loved one's life, those final breaths, those final words. When in those moments, when they know there's not much longer and I want to leave nothing left unsaid, that sacred honor of being in the room and that transition from life to death. And Jacob knows this is the most sacred, significant moment. This is what I want to make you make sure you get. It's not just a bunch of random names and it's not just a random request that my graveside be in a good location. No, there's something he wants his sons to get. I remember as I've had the, the privilege, that sacred honor as a pastor of being with other families in those moments. But on a very personal level, it was actually five years ago yesterday that my mentor, Buddy, who started the Grace uh, Churches, uh, he, he died. And I remember we knew uh, within you know, about uh, two months before, or two or three months before, that there wasn't much time left. And so every conversation with Buddy in those final months was just precious and we would just go sit with him on his back porch and he deteriorated pretty quickly but I can remember the final the last conversation I had with buddy and it was just me and him and we were sitting on his back porch and and me him and Sadie actually the three of us were there and uh and then he was covered up he was always cold and so he was covered up in his blanket we just sat there on the back porch together and it was interesting because he would he would kind of come in and out of consciousness and so, uh, and so he would kind of, he would be half in a sentence, and then it seemed like he was kind of falling asleep. And all of a sudden, he would wake up, and he would say something. And I remember all of these words, and some of them are absolutely just treasures that are, I believe are meant to be between me and him. And, uh, but there was one time that he woke up, I remember he kind of came, he was talking a little bit about, uh, you know, his life and what we'd shared, and then he kind of faded away, and then he, he, he kind of sat up, and like, incredibly alert and he said and I won't tell you everything he said but I remember this phrase he said I didn't see it before but I see it now and he spoke this word over me and over my future that I've held on to ever since and it was almost like he got a glimpse into something beyond this physical realm I didn't see it before but I see it now and as I read these words of Jacob over his sons, it's, I, I have this sense that it's like he is seeing more clearly than he has ever seen before. And what he wants his son to get is don't forget the bigger story you're a part of. Don't get caught up in this temporary little life. Don't get caught up in the successes and the blessings here. Because there's something else I'm doing, God is doing. 
And I just wonder if right now, because on the other side, I've been with, with too many families that have gotten to the end or, or haven't had the chance, whether by, by tragedy or opportunity, to say those final words or to, to be there in those last moments. And there are some of you I know that are carrying words that you just wish you had gotten to say. And as I was praying into that and thinking about that for this church and so many stories of those words left unsaid, is I believe what God wants you to know is, is simply this, that he knows. He knows. He knows the, that grief or that guilt or those things that you just wish you had spoken. He knows. He knows your heart. I think that's for some of you in here. Your father knows your heart. But remember that you're a part of something so much bigger than this little temporary life. Your father has something so much bigger than this temporary life. That there's another story playing out at a higher level that we just get to be a part of. And the question is, do we have eyes to see it for what it is? And having said everything that needs to be said, Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then we have this intimate scene of a son with his father. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. This is significant, not just simply in this, this sweet moment between a long-lost son and a reconnected father, but this is actually the fulfillment of a promise that God had made to Jacob. You want to write next to it in there your Bible, write a note. Genesis 46, 4. That God had told Jacob when he was bringing him out of Canaan into Egypt to go meet his son for the first time since that tragic moment in the pit with his brothers. God had said to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. You almost get this sense that for Jacob in this encounter with God, that, that he's scared to go and to, uh, to leave Canaan, to go to Egypt, even though he's going to get to reconnect with his son, because he knows that the promises God has placed on his life are about Canaan, about the promised land for future generations of kings that are going to come from his family. And so to leave that and to go to Egypt for him probably feels like a loss. Wait, God, my future is in Canaan. My future is in the promised land. That's the future for my sons. How am I leaving that to go to Egypt? And God's saying, trust me, this feels like a detour, but there's something that I'm doing. Keep walking with me. And even when it feels like we're going into the valley or we're taking a wrong turn, keep listening to me. I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to do something significant there in Egypt. And there's a few things I'm going to do for you, Jacob. I'm going to take you down there. And I'm going to bring your family back. And it's going to be your son, Joseph, that's going to close your eyes. In other words, this long lost son, I'm going to restore your relationship. And he's going to be there next to you when you breathe your last breath. And it's with those words of God speaking into Jacob, a man who had learned to listen to and follow God, that he trusts God and leaves everything to go into Egypt. And sure enough, as he takes his final breath, who is standing there by his side? But Joseph. And so Joseph 
calls and asks uh, Pharaoh to uh, whether or not he can ask for permission to take his father back as his father re- requested and to bury him there in the cave that Abraham had purchased. And I won't go into it, you can read it for yourself, but there's this, uh, I mean, incredible funeral procession. Not only does Pharaoh give permission to uh, Joseph and his family to go, but he sends the, basically the Egyptian army as the color guard to go with that family back into Canaan to bury, uh, to bury Jacob. And so the whole procession leaves, and they get there to the edge of the promised land, and everyone stops. And it says that they wait there for seven days, the, the, the proper days for mourning. And there's this loud wailing and this great mourning for this man, Jacob. This life of trusting God. The celebration of his legacy. And then from that point, only the sons go together to bury their father. And they sure enough, true to their word from Pharaoh to Pharaoh, they all Return back home. And I'm going to pick it back up in verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So he sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. We said that Jacob, there in the final moments of life, though blind with old age, saw more clearly than he had ever seen before. And here we see the brothers, blinded in their grief and in their guilt, unable to see. Because what they see is as they see that now their father has died, it's not like all of a sudden they just realize, oh wait, he's dead. I mean, they'd gone through the entire funeral procession. They're seeing something else. But what they're seeing is colored by their own guilt and their shame. And I think it's important that we see in this passage that there is a big difference between receiving forgiveness and living forgiven. I'll say it again. There is a big difference between receiving forgiveness and living forgiven. And there are a whole lot of people that I think have accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for their sin, recognize that uh, in belief and in trust and faith that that 2,000 years ago on the cross when Jesus died, that their sins were forgiven and yet still live in hostage to their shame and their guilt. There's a difference between receiving forgiveness And living forgiven. The brothers are still under that weight of guilt and accusation and fear. Living in a prison of their own shame. So shame is this deep-rooted yet universal emotion. That there is something in me 
that is undeserving of love and acceptance. That shame causes us to turn away, to hide, to self-protect, and to pretend. We see shame all the way back in the beginning of the garden when mankind uh, rebels against God and they go into hiding and they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. We see shame as, as they begin to strive to make a name for themselves on earth, proving that they have what it takes to survive on their own terms. We see shame in, in the self-protection that divides families. And the cravings and the demands that I get what I want no matter what the cost to you. We see shame in the paralyzed lives that aren't willing to listen or to follow God. And here, the brothers who have received the forgiveness of the brother that they threw into the pit and sold into slavery, having been blessed and have been reconciled, it seems like, are still carrying the weight of their own guilt in a way that they ha are not able to open their hearts and trust their brother because surely the shoe is about to drop. Surely now is the time that he's going to take vengeance on us. And I just wonder how many of us live with God in that same posture. Sure, God, you say you've forgiven me. Sure, you say that you love me. Sure, you say that there's grace. But at what point are you really going to crush me because of that thing that I did? At what point? I mean, it seems like things are good, but at what point, God, are you really going to get me? Because I know what I deserve. I know what I did or what I didn't do. And so we continue to live in a posture of defensiveness or self-protection, of pretense, of striving, trying to prove to God that we're worthy of the thing that we can never earn. Over and over again, it seems that the two biggest blocks to walking in freedom with God are one, the ability to receive, to walk in forgiveness. And the second, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, is the ability, the willingness to release others in forgiveness for the things they've done to us. Where are the places in your life that you're still holding on to the shame and the guilt of your past? One way to ask it is, as you look back on your life, is there any moment, is there any closet is there any memory that you still want to just tuck away and pretend that it never happened? Is there anything that you don't want anyone else to know about? Is there anything that you would rather just keep in the dark? And that is a place that God is inviting you to step into his forgiveness. Because the power of God in the gospel is that he is able to take even the most broken, shameful, awful things that we have done and have been done to us and turn them into something beautiful and powerful and sacred for his purposes. 
one of my favorite words, uh, prophecies, is Isaiah chapter 2. When God gives this image that they will turn their swords into plowshares. Their spears into pruning hooks. This picture that those weapons that had caused so much pain would actually become instruments of fruitfulness. The very things in your life that the enemy would love to convince you that you can never actually be forgiven for are actually the very things that God most wants to release and free to use for his plans and his purposes. Sometimes it's easier to see that in other people's lives than in our own life, isn't it? We talked about celebrate recovery. And what are the most powerful testimonies we hear? Are the places that people have received freedom and forgiveness from God. It's the alcoholic that stands up and says, I was a total mess and hit rock bottom. But in that courage of admitting their brokenness, says, but God met me in that place and is restoring me into health, into wholeness. And now my testimony is a testimony to encourage and to bless other people. I was an absolute greedy egomaniac that lived my life from on my own terms and cheated people out of things and lied to get ahead. But now God has, has met me in that place and is teaching me what it means to live open-hearted and generously. Our marriage was falling apart. And there was betrayal and deceit. But God met us in that place and he's teaching us to be honest and to forgive and to love. And we hear those stories and we look at those stories and we say, what strength and what courage by God's grace to step into that kind of freedom. And yet somehow we look at our own story and we look in the mirror and go, yeah, but that, that God can never forgive. Oh, but that God could never do anything with. And we remain paralyzed, held hostage in bondage to the things that God is wanting us to step into freedom and power. And so the brothers are living in the shame and the guilt and the fear of their own accusation, not because Joseph has refused to forgive. He already extended. He opened access to the kingdom. He has blessed them beyond measure. He demands nothing from them. In fact, he is pouring back into them the very things they took away from him. One of the, the fun uh, studies to do through the life of Joseph is to, to follow the cloak. Follow the clothing. Because what you find is the very last gift that Joseph gives his brothers is a fresh pair of clothes. The very thing that they stripped away from him becomes the very thing that he blesses them with. And in the same way, the things that have been a wreck, torn away from you, torn apart from you, that you have hurt in yourselves or in others, can become in God's hands the very things that he wants to use to bless those around you. And it is with that picture, Joseph, it says, Joseph weeps. It's almost like that his heart breaks, that his, his brothers have not turned their heart to him. And so the brothers come and they fall at him, and we finally see that true reconciliation reconciliation of relationship his brothers came down and fell before him and said behold we are your servants his echoes of the prodigal son there joseph never treats them as servants but as brothers 
But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and for your little ones. And with those words, Joseph is not just summing up his life. He's summing up the entire book of Genesis. The evil that we intended, the evil done by us and the evil done against us, that God is able to take those things and work out his plans, his purposes, and fulfill his promises. And the same is true not just in some historical book from thousands of years ago. That story is true. Those words living and active are available and inviting you to experience the grace and the power of God right now in your life. Can you see the hand of God at work, not just in the high points and the greatest moments and celebrations and victories of your life, but the hand of God faithfully at work in the failures, in the shame, in the broken places, in the places that you felt abandoned and lost and forgotten. And just as Romans 8, 28 says, that Paul, looking back on his life, is able to say that God works all things together for the good of those who love him according to his purposes. Where do you need to experience the grace of God in your life this morning? The cross is an invitation to let those places of brokenness and sin, sin and shame and guilt die with Jesus. But the cross isn't simply about releasing to God our brokenness and sin. But the cross is also this great exchange of God restoring into us his righteousness and goodness and life and fullness. Can you see the hand of God at work in your story? And can you receive the grace of God in the places of shame and pain? I invite you as we continue in worship for whatever God is stirring up, if you're willing, even as David earlier led us into that, that Psalm 139 pray God, prayer, God, search me and know me. Is there any wayward thought in me? Is there any place that God is, is wanting you to be honest with him about a place of, of sin or guilt or shame that he's inviting you to truly receive, to live in the forgiveness that he offers? So we invite you just to come and to kneel before God, an act of confession, of honesty before God. God, I confess. I have sinned. I'm broken. I've messed up. I'm carrying this place of guilt. I've been carrying this thing for 10, 20, 30 years or maybe for a week or last night. And I don't want it to define me any longer. And so in that confession that we just surrender and are honest with Jesus, Jesus, I give this to you. 
that I might receive your forgiveness. Jesus, forgive me. And as we release to God those places of guilt, of shame, as we see his hand at work in all the pits and valleys of our lives, the next question is, Jesus, what are you wanting to restore into me? What are you wanting to replace my sin with? What are you wanting to give me in exchange so that I can stand up into the full measure of the man or the woman that you made me to be? That as a son or daughter, I can become the kind of person that fruitful kind of person that lives and leads a life of blessing. Let's pray. So Lord, I thank you for this story that is more than just a story. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you showed up for Joseph and carried him through the times that looked like he had been abandoned and forgotten. Lord, for the ways that you took the sin of his brothers and actually brought a blessing, carried out your plans, not in spite of them, but through them. And so, Lord, I pray even right now, will you give us eyes to see how that same story has played out in our own lives? How your faithfulness has carried us through, even in times that we felt abandoned or forgotten. And God, how you want to take even the most broken moments of our lives, even our places of the greatest shame or guilt, and turn them into instruments of fruitfulness, of freedom, of grace, of blessing. into the fullness of your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.